Welcome to Hot Plate, the conversations we should be having about our food and drink. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, Joshna and I tackle texture, craft beer as convenience, and ask ourselves, is food art? In this episode, we'll also introduce a fun new segment called Blind Beer Date. Yep, it's exactly what it sounds like. So Joshna, I read an article recently about texturants uh, in food business Tec- news. Okay. Are you yes. familiar with texturants? Absolutely. Texturants. So these are things that uh, that that are added to food. Right. Right. Uh, to really impact the experience in your mouth on your tongue. Yeah. Really disconnected from flavor. Yes. Right. It's about what's actually happening. Um, And we see it. I see it show up in food a lot in an attempt to prop things up after taking offensive things. So, so, you know, allegedly offensive things like fat and sugar and salt out. Right. Because uh, and with with uh, dairy, I see it so much because listen. You like the feeling of milk fat on your tongue and the way that milk fat coats your mouth. There's nothing like it. No, no, no coconut anything is doing that. But everybody wants to have what they want without actually paying the you know what I mean, without actually paying yeah, the price yeah. for it. So we have all of these dairy free things that have now been juiced up with all of these bits to make you think that there is the richness of milk fat happening in your mouth when that's not what's happening at all. It's not. It's not. And, not at all. Um, Sidebar, yogurt makes me so sad now. Right. Remember when, I mean, I have to hunt to find a yogurt that's actually just yogurt. Just milk and culture. And you, yeah. you, you crack it open and there's all the little bubbles yeah. uh, on the top yeah. from the fermentation. And it's got that, you can't replace that Not silky mouthfeel right? that's there. And yogurt and now, I don't know, they've stripped everything yeah. out. And now and the it texture. it sort of sizzles on your tongue in a really offensive way. Right. So these texturants are yeah. designed, I guess, to fill those holes. Yes. Um, you know, the big gaping hole that's left when you take out all the yummy stuff. That's exactly um, it. But this particular article was about drinks, and th- I'm just going to read you this quote okay. that I found fascinating. Uh, so this is a quote from that article from Food Business News. It says, Surprisingly, texture is a beverage attribute that for a long time was not considered during the early stages of product development. Huh. It was only once the prototype went out for consumer testing and feedback was negative regarding the visual appearance and mouthfeel that formulators addressed texture. Wow. It's like it's an afterthought. Yeah. And that's so interesting. Right? Yeah, just in terms of what people are thinking, what like manufacturers are thinking about people's experience of things. But I also wonder if it reflects on people's experience of things. Oh, you know, I just I touched see, on um, because my my initial thought immediately yeah. was when I was reading this texturant article was what's up with all these alcohol free beers? Because we have these alcohol free beers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where, you know, to get to the alcohol free and not leave too many residual sugars, you know, the trick you have to remove some stuff. And there is that gaping hole in the mouthfeel where uh, you know more the, is lost the flavor is there the, right. and then it's a gaping hole and then bitterness. Okay. And you know, why why aren't texturants used to mm. fill this gaping hole in beer? And it turns out because beer is the natural product and people who right. make beer don't want to start putting a bunch of chemicals in Go there. Go figure. So, right. right. So that makes sense. But thinking about this, the just the consumer in general and and texture. I mean, mouthfeel for me in beer is something that I've come to like much later. It's right. not something I thought about earlier. And I wonder if it's something people don't think about 
And the, the, re- the one thing that leads me to think about this is microwaves. Oh, yeah. Because one of my, mm-hmm. the things that drives me completely nuts now is you go to a bakery, you want a croissant, you want it warmed up. They only have a microwave. It's the worst. I'm sorry, but you put worst. that in a microwave, you're going to lose everything, everything that makes the whole point the of the flakiness. The All croissant. the butter just melts and it's soggy and greasy and... I don't even get it. No, thank you. Um, you're a bakery. Yeah. Have some pride. I agree. It made me think, like, is texture just not that important these no. days? Is that a trend no. you've noticed in uh, food? The, uh, there was a time, uh, I, I, now that you're saying this, I've, I think that there is some reduction and it's diminished a bit. But as a, as a young chef, mm-hmm. mouthfeel and texture was a, is a huge deal, right? Okay. And as far as cooking is concerned... Uh, right. You imagine one bite that's like, you know, a handful of chews involved to get that bite down. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think a lot about what it's like to have that mouthful in your mouth. How's it going to break the down? Process, right. It, how's it going to break down? What's going to linger on your tongue? What's going to go into the gutter in the side mm-hmm. of your mouth? What's going to potentially scrape against the roof of your mouth? Mm-hmm. Right. Like a, like I remember as a kid, a bowl of uh, Fruit Loops that hadn't soaked in the milk enough. Right. Right. And you eat it too enthusiastically, but then you've scraped up the inside of your mouth in a really sort of intense way. Um, and does the textural interest last as long as it takes to chew and swallow the mouthful? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it like uh, and you know what I'm reminded of is does it hold? Some, does it evolve? Yeah. And there's some gum that would have like flavor crystals or something in it. Yes. And like, the, you know what I mean? Like yes. the first two chews were this like juicy burst of taste. And then it would flatten out into that sort of like malleable paste that just hung out for a while. Like it was like a quick start and then it stopped. Um, so the texture piece is super in the, in the kitchen. Anyhow, the texture piece is super important. Um, and that's it's very much included in how meals are evaluated. Right. Cool. Both meals that I have prepared and even now as an instructor. When I think about things, I'm like, this is too much mushy stuff, right? I didn't actually need teeth to consume this <laughs> <laughs> is what I say sometimes to students yeah. when that's appropriate. Or it's like, this is all too harsh, right? It's all constant chomping, right? Mm-hmm. And my jaw is sore, right? It's uh, it can the, be, you yeah, know, on, on the sort of the opposite side, yeah. side of that scale. Um, but it's, it's hugely important. And it also is the reason why you see like beautiful hors d'oeuvres or plates that have a little drizzle of some crispiness, mm-hmm. right? Or fried sage on top of something or the, you know, the, the shoestring potatoes or whatever it is. It is with that thought in mind yes. to break up richness to, you know what I mean? An otherwise monotone of a piece of meat, which can really be a bit of a monotone that you have to get through. I've seen that have, right? in uh, takeout salads too. I've, they, they'll have the dressing on the side, but sometimes they'll also have like a little yeah. pot of crunchy stuff on the side. Uh, these are these are mega considerations, I think. They absolutely are. I agree with you 100%. And I'm delighted to hear that these conversations are happening yeah. in the chef sphere. Because oh, yeah, yeah. I do feel on, on the other side, they, they are a little bit lost. Yep. And, um, you know, my heart breaks every time I see pasta on a buffet that's been... Si- it's like, that, there's, that's, that's no, nowhere close to Adenta. That's been sitting itself, there for right. the, I don't know how long. Or right. Just drinking in all uh, the moisture. Yeah. You know, we were talking to Jason a few episodes back about takeout. And you know how the, the texture right. and is no crispiness uh, in his completely fries. gone. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like um, the more I think about it, that is the, f- the first, I guess, soldier that has fallen. That's a horrible 
Yeah, no. <laughs> no, but I think you're right. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, it's like the first thing that we're losing um, when we, you know, eat for uh, convenience. Yes. And, you know, the, the, talking about the microwave, talking about yep. delivery and things like that. I feel like, and or, you know, wanting to have as much yogurt as we want with no fat yeah. in it or no sugar. Um, well, listen, also texture is the to, first thing that is falling. Connecting to my work, um, institutional plates. Mm-hmm. Are, there's zero textural interest because everything uh, is steamed back to life. Oh, right. And, and kitchens, hospital kitchens don't actually smell like food. They smell like a steam table. Oh, dear. Right. So yeah. everything has is surrendered. That's why I had to find other things besides toast, because toast could never stay toasted. They would steam the toast. Well, the thing is, it would get toasted, but then it would go under this sweaty dome. <gasps> right. And it would just become just this like warm. pitiful, limp version of itself. <sighs> Right. I mean, added injury was the fact that we, for whatever crazy reason, had a, a refurbished Tim Hortons bagel toaster, uh, which only <laughs> toasts on one side of the bread. Right. So there was this like painful truth about the fact that the budgets were so cut and trimmed that we could only afford to toast one side of the bread, oh. which just made it much more susceptible to this soggy, pitiful, you know, this lifelessness. Yeah. Um, and it's the steaming. I, th- I like this. This is important, I think. This connection about the surrender of texture in the interest of convenience, right? Or, or mass production or scalability, you know, scale, whatever it is, right? That's the conclusion that I came Moving to. Moving a lot of food around because even your most beautiful egg rolls, mm-hmm. right? Unless this, you know, you've seen it, the smart Chinese restaurant that takes, that burns the corners. Of yeah. the styrofoam container to let the steam out, so it's it's in reasonably better yes. shape, right? Yeah, and yeah. I see the the karage chicken and the Japanese and pakora sometimes get this treatment, but everything else just gets packaged up, put into more bags, into a pack, and it's just this sort of lifeless, surrendered version of itself when it gets to you. And it tastes right, but the texture no, and that's Not a huge piece. I think so too of the experience. It is a giant piece uh, because how things the nerves. It's about the nerve endings inside in your mouth, right? Yeah. You it's still it's much more than just tasting a thing. It is actually how it feels. Uh, so I uh, I like this. I'm going to think about this some more. Yeah, food for thought. Uh, I love this a lot. Thank you. The other topic I wanted to talk about today, and I love this. I find it quite yeah. intriguing. I I came across two articles in the past month right. about the fact that um, craft breweries and tap rooms, the presence of a craft brewery right. or a tap room will raise the property value of uh, the, the houses and the condos in no the area. Yeah, and right. it's counterintuitive because bars generally yeah, lower are undesirable. it. Yeah, right? that's the truth. And so these are studies and they've been doing these across the U.S. I'm very excited to see if someone is doing a similar study in Canada. But it turns out that if you have a a tap room or a craft beer bar in the area, just as if uh, it's an amenity. It's just like if you had well, a grocery is, store in, in right? the area, that's how people are seeing it. And it's uh, it's raising the property value. I think you, what you, you sent a piece over and I read the bit and I loved that note that that one guy said about how a craft brewery is an amenity. Yeah. And I was like, what? This is this is a new world, friends. That is amazing. It's fantastic. And certainly it's something that I've witnessed in because with tap rooms specifically, they are industrial zoned, right? A brewery requires a, a very I see. I was going to ask about the distinction there. Okay. So the way a tap room works is it's uh, just attached to 
a brewery. So it's a it's an industrial facility, usually in an industrial area. Oh, right. Uh, often in a more historical industrial area, area that has a little bit of character to it. Sure. So that the tap room looks cute. Right, right. And it's, I think it's quite common, you wow. know, that these areas are reviving. I think, of, you know, Geary Street. Yeah, in Toronto, yeah. that you know, who had ever heard of Geary totally. Street? It was just mechanic shops, right? right? It was auto shops and things like that. And now there's a couple of bars, yeah. a few small businesses, some lovely restaurants. Uh, it's interesting. Wow. Well, I guess I mean, even when we think about here in the distillery, mm-hmm. an anchor is Mill Street. Yes. Right over there, for sure. It was about it was about Mill Street and what was happening, and then and then I mean, I'm sure not exclusively, uh, but. This is super, super fascinating. So, okay, but look. Okay. Further questions here mm-hmm. is what is it about craft? Like, what what is it about craft beer? Is it because it's smaller scale production and, and Molson won't have the same impact on a community? That way, you know what I mean? That way, is, is that is that a fair thing to understand? Yeah, it's interesting. The community aspect is definitely a large piece of it. Okay. Um, and uh, I read a number of articles about mm-hmm. this, and one of them did mention that uh, certainly one of the strategies with a craft brewery is to settle into an area where there is uh, uh, some residential zoning right. nearby. Okay. Uh, again, because who's not going to want to wander over three blocks right. for and a to craft be able to beer. stumble back home uh, again. Yeah. Right. Either to drink it or, you know, <laughs> right. to grab a growler to have with dinner or right. well, it is an amenity. Um, so they strategically will place themselves there. Uh, so yeah, I think community is definitely a oh, large is part of it. Sort of a lovely thing. Yeah. So this oh. article was saying, uh, so they did a study between 2002 and 2017. This was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. And uh, condos in areas where a craft brewery was uh, built in that area saw a 3% increase on their sales price. And single family homes saw a 10% increase 10% in value. 10% in property value. Yeah. That is extraordinary. And, you know, for booze. Which, you know, historically is seen as a negative. deterrent, yeah. So I... Wow, two snaps craft beer. That's right. It's a wonderful trend. I love it. Okay, here it is. This, this, the moment I started reading, I could feel the fire growing inside of me. And I wanted to scream and yell. So for our listeners, Josh and I are referring to an article um, entitled Why Food Should Be Looked At as Art, which was published in uh, a paper called The Hindu. Yeah, it's like a, it's a journal, a newspaper or something. And a choi- My people, easily. A yes. choice quote from that article was, uh, if food is art, taste alone cannot determine its quality oh, or merit. too much. It's too much. It's just like the pomposity of this author was more like, I feel like I need to take a shower after I read this thing, right? It was the suggestion of the, I'm like, who is this person? What life do they live? And who are their friends? Uh, Because it's like, it's, it's, and, and, but at the same time, right, I found myself so conflicted because I had this immediate response being like, are you kidding me? With this elitist, esoteric nonsense, mm-hmm. right? Uh, while at the same time, um, I really, I really value the opportunity that a plate has to deliver a message. 
For sure. Right. And in my world, it's it's about social context and politics. Um, but I but I think it's imp- I think that the plate is also a canvas. Right. I think there's no question that the plate is a canvas and we know our lessons as chef students are the fact that you eat with your eyes first. And there's thoughtfulness about a, 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 you know what I mean, a spray of uh, sauce on the bottom of a plate or how something is perched, you know, and shape and color and aesthetic. All of that. Yeah, it's a form of self-expression. One hundred percent. For sure. But this idea that a that 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 this is actually what chefs are doing. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just putting something delicious down for you to put in your mouth and eat, yeah, is out is ridiculous. I'm just gonna uh, for our listeners quote the the onion the the uh, so one of the oh central dishes that they were talking right. about was uh, a chef who had served a whole yeah a pungent whole onion. onion. And it was not really cooked. They had used some enzymes to break it down yes, somewhat. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and this was a dish that that this chef had prepared with a different onion, which isn't as pungent uh, in another right. country, and then served it here. And it was essentially an onion an on a plate. An onion on a plate. And a peeled onion on a plate. Yes. Right. And the you know the person who wrote this article argued that you know people who refused to eat it or weren't into it you know could not appreciate right. the artistry. Of right. the dish, because this was the chef expressing himself. Right. That it was, in fact, already a broken down onion because already because of the secret enzymes that had been popped in. And that you that your lack of taste for it is about your lack of ability to understand it. Exactly. Right. Which is that is those are fighting words. Yeah. Man. And, th- and then he drew in, you know, the art parallel and, you know, the, uh, you know, poetry is still writing. Right. And it's like, yeah. yeah, but poetry is still being read. Right. The, right. F- food is maybe art, but it still needs to be eaten. It just yes. needs to be designed to be eaten. It can't be, you know, purposefully off-putting, I don't think. It's so ridiculous. Right. Uh, the first my first thought is there. I, I will not support the notion of pushing boundaries with food that then renders it inedible. You know what I mean? That pushes food exactly. past its primary function, which is to be eaten. Because then a bunch of food is being thrown out. Precisely, right? And, and, and I food remember, waste, and that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other story. And right. I remember being a student and particularly hating mm-hmm. the aspic section. Wait, right? What's aspic? So aspic is jelly made of broth stock. Okay. Right. So it's like chicken stock with gelatin added to it. So is that what's floating on top of your soup if you make like a bone broth? No, that's no. that's really nice, good fat. Okay. Aspic, aspic is, is in terrines. And force meat kind of stuff or a bunch of meat. Like it's oh, aspic. that clear stuff. It's often the stuff yeah. holding head cheese together, right? That sort of transparency business. You, you in lost between. me a head cheese. But Precisely. T- 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 I, yeah, I've yeah. got you there. Yes, right? I know what that but is. But so aspic is mm. for a competition plate. So we'd have to like poach this chicken breast. Mm-hmm. And then I'd take my paring knife and cut a stupid little leaf pattern out of a piece of carrot. Mm-hmm. And with tweezers, lay it down. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have this gelatin, this cold stocky gelatin aspic mixture Mm -hmm. that I'd be running back and forth to the fridge and the technique was about laying it over so you didn't see any ripples in the chicken. Okay. And I needed like six layers Uh and nobody was ever going to eat this food. But it was so high pressure and so intense. It has nothing to do with artistry. It just had something to do with some weird French thing, right? Really, all that was happening in, in cooking school was just some sort of weird, fresh thing. But no, as every layer of this, we were like, I never want to eat this. So I have the oh, same response yeah. to that, to this, as I do to this notion 
that you are just going to get a plate of food and and the the wealth of that plate of food is a chef's artistic commentary? Uh, I say no thanks. Uh, you can, the artistic commentary cannot obscure the primary the primary point of a dish. Right. So I also wanted to ask you. I don't know if you've heard about this gagan gagan yes gagan. Yeah. So so tell me about okay. Gagan. So gagan is an Indian chef mm-hmm. um, who has gained a ton of fame for a restaurant in Bangkok. Okay. Which curiously is actually about to close, but I think it's because he's on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about him, born and raised Indian mm-hmm. and became a chef and was sort of excited about food and cooking, then discovered El Bulli. Right. And he discovered the, the molecular gastronomy ah. and, and its mm-hmm. anchor in Spanish cuisine. Uh, and, and I think sort of like um, finangled himself a stage in the El Bulli kitchen. Okay. Right. And so El Bulli, famous for uh, lots of tricks, right? Sort of like it looks like a capsule, but then it explodes and it tastes like popcorn. And you know what I mean? And it's okay. really, yep. it's one of those places where you go to really have a lot of fun. Things or things come with a cloche on top. So you lift the cloche and a beautiful, you know, some sort of like fern mist Would will you hit you in the face. Artistic? What, one. <laughs> Yes, for God's sake. Uh, so Gagan, Gagan had this spirit and he would that really sort of turned his crank. Right. Nice. He was really yeah. into it. But then what happened was that he tried to open a restaurant. He attempted an Indian restaurant mm-hmm. that had this sort of playful molecular gastronomy vibe to it. Right. And the bottom line was India was like, no, thank you. This mm. is not for us. We're not into it. Uh, we we don't want to we we just give just give us our curry and roti, right? Right. Thank kind of like how I feel much. about plating. Right. Yeah. We no thanks. It just need to taste good. Right. I don't wanna, so yeah. he went to Bangkok, right, and attempted this in Bangkok, and it's super important in terms of how we understand identity and nationalism and all of this kind of stuff to really connect to the fact that uh, an, an Indian chef only had the room for experimentation with Indian food outside of India. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. Says a lot about Indians and how we feel about our food. Right. Right? Uh, and for sure, he was one of the first to even dare to go down to, you know, although perhaps as someone listens to this, they will counter with names of Indian chefs in India who are doing all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But there's something really special about what Gagan has done. Right? And so when I investigated, there's a chef's table special on him, which mm-hmm. you can learn about all of this. But the he it's some like 10, 15 courses of a thing mm-hmm. at Gagan in Bangkok. Right. And he has taken Indian, the context of Indian food, but really pushed the notion to incorporate a lot of this playful molecular gastronomy. Mm-hmm. Right. And what he's also trying to do, which I think is super awesome, is to broaden uh, the everybody's minds about what Indian food really is. Yeah. Right. Because right now, Indian food is just sort of like dreamy, heavy gravies, fluffy naan and sometimes fire that will burn your face off. Yes. Right. And that's great. But that is literally food from one region of the country. And lassies. And lassies. (laughs) And and fresh jalebi. Oh, my God. Um, But it's just from one region of the country. It's not. There's there's so much more richness around Indian cuisine. And that is the story that he wants to tell. And so to hear, I mean, maybe this is just a a game, a delightful sort of game of perspective. Mm -hmm. But to hear the author of this piece suggest that it was his own like internalized hate 
for Indian food and that he could the only way he could do it was to like whitey it up or European it up a little bit was I was like, you have got to be kidding me, buddy. Okay, I'm following you now because from what I had read in the article, it was so derogatory and what you're saying is so positive. Okay, so it's really it's just it's, it's about this author. The attitude this person of the needs author. to sort of unpack some stuff, really, because if if the if his if their response to what Guggen is doing is the fact that this man is ashamed of himself, and the only way he wants to do it is to wrap Indian flavors in a Western context, I think they've completely missed the point. Okay, slight slight sidebar. Let's have it. Because one of the things that hit me with this piece immediately was plating, and plating yeah drives me nuts. Tell me more. If I order food, I uh. I want food on the plate. I don't want like one piece of asparagus gently strewn over a little chunk of another tiny little uh, piece of something. Right. And then with a drizzle. The sort of I gymnastics. Yeah. Sometimes the, the visual aspect is uh, trumping, mm-hmm. you know, the, the actual experience yeah. and also seems to be an excuse to underfeed. Connecting to other conversations about texture. Yes. Right. One of my irritations around plating is that uh, the pl- you don't get enough of all of the elements. Thank you. Right. Yes. So that every mouthful is the way it needs to be. It's just like my 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 no dry corners campaign for sandwiches. Yes. Right. All fillings got in all a sandwich pressed to the furthest edge of the crust, people. <laughs> Sign me up for that campaign, Thank by the you. way. We'll get T-shirts. No dry <laughs> corners. I will fire people from my kitchen. For producing sandwiches with dry corners. Do not. If you have some beautiful crunchy thing, you have to give me enough of it mm-hmm. so that I can get through the whole piece of meat that you've also put on the plate. So, okay. So you're with me on the plating. I'm, I'm, I'm with okay. you. I it, thought you were going to defend. No, it's a, uh, I love a beautiful plate. Mm-hmm. There's no question. And sometimes a pair of tweezers is in fact required to perch a thing. Okay. Right. I, I'll go there. It's, it can be wonderful. Um, but uh, what we, what I see too often is attempts at plating that uh, that tr- that tr- that are like that take you in the wrong direction in terms of your expectation about what this plate is all about and what's going to happen in your mouth right afterwards. It's like, man, you spent all this time putting all this jewelry <laughs> on when the body that it's on or the outfit is actually kind of not is not great in the first place. That's right. right? You've over accessorized something that isn't actually that awesome to begin with. Again, the artistry should never trump. Food that's experience. Exactly that's, that's the exactly bottom it. line. Yep. So, Joshna, thank you for joining me in this adventure. Yes, I'm, I'm excited. In my work in beer, I'm called on to do food pairings a lot. Oh, for and sure. And it's something no. that um, has become intuitive for me. And in my work in food pairing, I often muse because um, we always present great pairings to people. And sometimes right. I wonder, right. wouldn't it be great really well. right. to insert one course or a little aside of something that clashes just to help people really appreciate the art that is behind the pairing? Oh, I love that. Um, another aspect, though, is also the fact that because I've honed this, Sometimes I miss surprising pairings. So often there are pairings oh, that work enough, because of science and calculation well, right. and so on. Uh, but there yeah. are also things that work and defy any kind of, uh, you know, conventional wisdom or theory. And they just click. So for Ooh, I like that. the idea behind Blind Beer Date is... 
why don't I just bring in a random beer? Yeah. And you bring in a random food. Yeah. And uh, and we'll see Let's how see they get a along. Good match. And <laughs> um, I don't know. They it could be a pleasant surprise. Right. It could be or a train just, wreck. Uh, yeah. But, but either we'll way, know more. yeah, we'll know. Love it. Okay. We're on the same page. I love this a lot. So should I start with the beer? Please. Okay. The beer I've brought is called Rodenbach Grand Cru. Have you had this? I have not. So the Rodenbach Grand Cru is from Belgium. And it is a Flanders red ale. It has often been here. I'll top you up. Okay. A lot Flanders of people red ale. say it's the most wine-like of oh. beers. It does have an acidity. And as you nose it, you'll notice there's a, a fruitiness. There's like Ooh. sour cherry, orange. Oh, that is um, a surprise. Some notes, maybe a hint of chocolate or rose. Uh-huh. Definitely bitter chocolate. And then a yeah. zingy finish. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Oh, my. Very different. This has a lot of things to say. Yeah. Oh. So Having this is trouble, what I had in my having fridge. Trouble finding love, are you? <laughs> Poor little thing. <laughs> this is actually a very food friendly beer, but I it depends it. on what you brought. Okay, so what I brought something uh, again. This is from uh, my own culture, but it is uh, something that has been like kicking around my <laughs> kitchen. Yes. Right. Uh, that I've, every time I just sort of keep moving it around, being like, I don't know where to store you, but I can't. I don't really. I can't eat you all. Uh, so this this poor thing has been hanging out a bit dismissed. Looking for love. Looking for love for sure. Uh, so this is is called Chicky. Okay. Right. And my mother describes it best as the Cadillac of peanut brittle. Okay. Right. Okay. And so it's from it's this is from Mumbai. She brought this back from a very particular store that specializes in these types of things. Right. So and you is can this see pistachios? It, the it is. There's a lot. There's almonds, cashews, pistachios, um, and then the caramel that holds it all together is that is jaggery or that unrefined sugar. Okay. Right. So it's less sweet. Oh. Which I love. All right. Right. So you'll see when when you taste. Please crack it open and have a taste. It is also. I love uh, the packaging. I know. It's designed so that you can hold you can it just, without getting your fingers that's sticky. Right. And. It is very nut dense, so it's also uh, there's a richness, right? Because there's more nuts than there is caramel in this situation. Great. Yeah, and there's there's a bit of cardamom in there, a tiny bit of ground cardamom. But I will say the pistachios themselves are really floral. And I love that it's cracker thin. Indeed, right? It's really like like maybe two millimeters or something. One of those premium plus crackers. Totally, exactly the same size. It's exactly right. It also has a sesame snap vibe. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, that was that's, that's an easy way to understand it. So to have a taste. Yep. As described. Right? Super nutty. You can the richness. So there's a little more fat rolling around in your mouth on your mm-hmm. tongue. Right. Um, and not like not as intensely harsh on the teeth as peanut brittle can be because you can you can break a tooth. So this is not brittle. honey. It's just no sugar. It's, that, uh, it's unrefined sugar that it comes in this big stack that you have to like knife pick at to break it down. Because it, there's a complexity to the sugar, yes. the taste of the sugar. Yes. It's not straight sweet. It's not just a smack of sweet in the face. I, no. I wouldn't say it tastes like honey, but it has a honey like complexity. Yeah, and, and it's the, a mineral. Yep. A mineral Absolutely. note. And, and a sort of uh, a, a green, like a grown thing. You know what I mean? Either. Is there a touch of salt? 
I'm sure. There's there's some salt. I'm sure. It doesn't taste like salt, but there's a almost salinity a, of some a, sort, like a brininess yeah. almost. That yeah. sounds off-putting, but it's that not. That might it's be tasty. something to do with what's happening with the nuts. That's an interesting one. I like that. Mm. So you see, so it's uh, I mean, it's quite complex and quite lovely, but I I can only eat so much. So these were purchased in in India, India. And this back. beer was made in Belgium. Yes. So they've traveled oh, a long way looking for oh, love. Oh, this story is so sweet. <laughs> okay. I can't stop eating this. It's. I'm glad. It's. I find it, I think it's really quite delicious. And maybe it's nice for me to revisit this with friends to remind myself about how much I like it. And what will ha- what, so what The beer is sweet and sour. Yeah. Um. So the concern is sometimes a sweet note will cancel out the sweet note of the beer, leaving only oh, the sour. Oh, I see. Just like, just like math. Yeah. Okay. So in food pairing rules, we say your beer should be as sweet, if not sweeter, than uh, the dish. Okay. Okay. I am very curious, though, because because the nutty flavors, I think, will tie in really nicely with the more chocolatey mm-hmm, elements mm-hmm. of the beer, and I feel like this rose water oh, cardamom will bring the out the flavors. fruity, right. the fruity aspects. So. I, I, I'm not going to confidently say that it'll clash. I think some of the the flavors will be really interesting, right. but possibility. I am, I'm just concerned about. Right. There's the, the there's it's all a matter of what actually happens. Yeah. Shall we okay, try? So we take a bite, do a chew, and then take a sip. Oh, I think there's no rules. Okay. Does anyone stop and think? You know, mm-hmm. I, that that drives me bonkers when people Great. are like, "What are the rules when you're eating and drinking together?" Good to know. <laughs> On the first sip. Of the introduction of the beer, mm-hmm. it just feels like it's a lot happening that's sort of clanging into each other, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is too much happening in my mouth. But then things settle down pretty substantially. Uh, and when the nuttiness of the, you know, after you've broken down the nuts in your mouth with your teeth, that's really compelling. That second bit that shows up yes. is good. That's the, a, like that's something extra is happening there. The, yeah, the floral and cardamom uh-huh. is really blooming. It's combining with the orange in the beer. Oh, they um, found something really important to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I think the beer is standing up I think nicely. It is too. It's and not, it's not bossy. No, no. It's it's almost like it's like raw, and then it like pulls back a little bit. I, I don't think either is dominating this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're having a nice dialogue. I think so too. They both have interesting things to contribute. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's not a spectacular pairing. Nope, but it works. It does. Uh, it does. Uh, and so, just for curiosity's sake, a spectacular pairing would be when they do they they complement each other. They they bring things out in each other that were not necessarily there without the other. Yeah. So there's right? three different combinations okay, that I, I look this. for. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me. One is what I call a meld. So they just, you know, blend perfectly. And I think that's what's happening with the the floral and the orange notes. Um, okay. Here, okay. you know, just they, they, they sort of blend and heighten each other. Um, so sometimes that can happen on, on, in the entire scale of the food. Then there's what I call the dance, which is when, you know, some of the flavors from the beer pop out and then some of the flavors from the food. Yeah. And there's like a little back sure, and forth. Sure, there's a little volley. Delightful. Absolutely, yes. And the third one is elusive and I call it the third flavor and it's really not something you can predict it just magically happens sometimes and that is when you combine a beer with a food and a third flavor appears that was neither in the beer or the food I feel like this snack is very food friendly uh, beer friendly yep they're not um they're interacting well they're not repellent Mm -hmm. I would probably lean I think the 
the fruitiness of this beer is nice and the the, the, mm-hmm. the malt chocolate mm-hmm. works well. Mm-hmm. It's the acidity. Yes, that, yes. That takes you in too far in other direction and there's no room for this chicky uh, there. Right. Right? That's right. essentially because you're it's, over in Sourland. I don't know that any... I don't know that any uh, Indian people or anybody, for that matter, would have considered a chicky beer pairing. Right. But I like it a lot. And and this is the thing that comes out at the end of the meal. Mm. Right. After sweets and desserts. It's like this little lovely thing that someone pulls out a box that they brought from their last trip to India. Oh, nice. (laughs) Right. This is the vibe. Uh, But to know that what would be appropriate is to crack open a beer to have some fun with. Why not? I love that. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying The Hot Plate, rate us or leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to Joshna for joining us today. Hot Plate is recorded at Eggplant Picture and Sound Studios. Our audio engineer is Brad Tigwell. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. That's a wrap.